Welcome to the OK School Me podcast. I'm Dr. Mako Fitzward, Director of the Social Transformation Lab at Arizona State University. In this episode, we address the issue of politicizing education. State legislatures are banning books, issuing course denials, and policing curriculums. Arizona, like the rest of the U.S., has a long history of using education to discriminate, erase, or control narratives which impact current and future circumstances, which thus becomes history. A perfect example of politicizing education, let's start outside of Arizona. And that's with Governor Ron DeSantis' decision to block an advanced placement African-American history course because it violates the state's policy regarding critical race theory. However, Equating CRT to African-American history is like saying blue and purple are the same. While one impacts the other, they are not the same thing. This is an example of how education is politicized. We'll talk with Dr. Carrie Sampson, who's an academic and an associate professor here at ASU, as well as a community organizer. And she'll talk about the political atmosphere here in Arizona and around the country. We'll also speak with Ashley Farrell, a third grade teacher whose master's thesis focused on appropriate sexual health and consent education in K through 12 schools. We'll talk with Dr. Carrie Sampson, an associate professor at ASU, who will discuss the political atmosphere in Arizona and around the country. We'll also talk with Ashley Farrell, a third grade teacher whose master's thesis focused on appropriate sexual health and consent education in K through 12 schools. Our student assembly talks to undergraduate students about their own experiences in the classroom, many of whom attended Arizona public schools, and what they think about the current political environment around education in the state. Kyle McKinney will give us our learning moment. So let's begin our transformation for today and get this lesson started. Hi, I'm Jamal Brooks-Hawkins, a fourth-year PhD student at Arizona State University and a research assistant in the Social Transformation Lab. And I'm Amber Green, a PhD candidate in gender studies within the School of Social Transformation, and I'm also a research assistant. Arizona's history of politicizing education by erasing or predicting policies based on race, gender, and sexuality, whether Indian boarding schools at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century, statewide school segregation of Mexican and Black Americans until 1951, Arizona's education has been replete with discriminatory policies before it was officially a state. Furthermore, this history is replete with underserving populations of marginalized individuals. The Red for Ed movement is another example of individuals protesting government policy that continually underserves public education in which a large majority of low-income students of color are educated. Teachers and education support professionals stage a walkout of their classrooms in 2018 because of the deplorable conditions in Arizona schools. The Red for Ed movement was the largest educator walkout in history. The movement demanded educational funds for schools and adequate pay for teachers. Arizona's national education ranked rank fluctuates between 47th and 49th in the nation. The classrooms are over capacity with the highest number of students per teacher. Our counselor ratio is 716 to one, when the national recommendation is 250 to one. Arizona has the lowest graduation rates and the lowest teacher salaries. Since the movement, 
Governor Doug Ducey promised to increase teachers' pay by 20% over the next three years and proposed Prop 208 in 2020 that would direct tax dollars to education. However, even with the changes in legislation and the increase of teacher salaries, Arizona's education system continues to struggle. The Arizona legislature passed HB 2458 and Senate Bill 1305 in February 2023. The title of the bill is specific in its language about race, ethnicity, and sex in classroom instruction in preschool through 12th grade. The law prohibits schools, quote, school district, charter school, or state agency employees who are involved with students and teachers from using public monies for or allowing instruction that promotes or advocates for any specific concepts, end quote. The specific concepts being race, ethnicity, and sex. On its face, the legislation seems reasonable as it forbids the teaching of one race being better than the other, that people are not inherently prejudiced or not based on their racial makeup. The bill's primary sponsor, Republican Beverly Pingarelli, in public comments, has specifically stated the bill is to keep critical race theory from being taught in preschool all the way through high school as it causes division among students. In a January 2023 article from AZ Central, Bizer and Baker quoted an eighth grade social studies teacher named Marisol Garcia. What she said was, we can all agree that America goes through changes. It's part of what makes America so great. My disappointment is that we're spending it on issues like this, but there are real issues facing our educators every single day. The consequences of legislations like SB 1305 is that it is dangerously close to erasing history. Race has been a central factor in labor, education, social programs, the law, and more institutions in the United States. The framing of no individual, quote, should feel discomfort, guilt, anguish, or other forms of psychological distress because of their race, ethnicity, or sex suggests that preschool through 12th grade teachers are maliciously causing psychological harm to students by targeting them racially. Additionally, the way the law is written and can be enforced does not limit it to the classroom. On March 9th, 2023, Governor Katie Hobbs vetoed the bill. We will talk with Dr. Carrie Sampson and Ms. Ashley Farrell about politicizing education. Uh, let's start the conversation considering what happens inside of the classroom so that folks have a context for the space of learning. Um, in what ways are K through 12 educators engaging teaching methods such as hands-on learning and peer mentoring? And how do these methods support kids learning? So educators now, very different from uh, older generations where we kind of had that sit and get Rose model. Educators now are really working to implement cooperative learning strategies daily and often project-based learning where they're engaged in meaningful and authentic um, real-world connections in their in their learning. Um, they're empowering lead learners to be leaders of their own learning and to take charge of what they really want to accomplish by setting goals, tracking goals with their peers, and holding each other accountable in the classroom. And teachers are really acting as facilitators in their learning and guiding their learning rather than 
the expert in the room, the only expert in the room trying to value students' experiences when they come in and knowing that they're coming in with a lot to offer. So, Ashley, what inspired you to want to become a school teacher? Oh, this is a, a make-me-cry question. I'm a crier. But um, two, two people really inspired me to be a teacher initially, and one was my grandma. She was a teacher, and she was just such a role model for me. And then the other one was my niece, and she was born when I was still in high school and kind of making the decision about where to um, be major, where I wanted to go and, and what I wanted to major in and just watching her as a baby to a toddler, like learn so much and just having the energy in the room of getting to learn alongside of her really wanted, made me want to become a teacher and do that for the rest of my life. It's <laughs> beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. Thanks for sharing, Ashley. Mm -hmm. Uh, we know that parents and educators are calling on state officials to look at the amount of homework, standardized <laughs> testing, hours in the school day, and consider potentially later starter times or longer recess breaks. Um, these asks are informed by research and suggest that children and adolescents learn and thrive when these factors are considered. Dr. Sampson, based on your work, are school districts and local and state officials responding to these demands? And if they are, how so? If not, what can be implemented to reflect the up-to-date current research? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for having uh, me, us, here to have this conversation. Um, I think they are slowly but surely implementing research-driven, you know, policies and practices. Um, it really is, though, dependent on, a lot of times, depending on the state, um, the local district, and even the school. So mm -hmm. um, in California, for instance, they um, instituted the first um, ever um, uh, policy, statewide policy, where middle school and high school students... Um, we'll start later, mm -hmm. 8, 8 o'clock and 8.30 a.m. Mm -hmm. um, and that was very research-based um, and research-driven. Um, but you also have, you know, a, a California school board, a state board of education there that, it, you know, is made up of a lot of scholars and um, longtime practitioners. Mm -hmm. And so they're really receptive, I think, to these kind of um, research uh, initiatives and mm -hmm. suggestions and recommendations. Um, we also have like research, uh, recess time, mm -hmm. which was rolled back um, in many places in, this, in many schools throughout the country during No Child Left Behind mm -hmm. to increase instruction time. And now is kind of going, you know, full circle where, you know, we're recognizing the importance of play mm -hmm. um, and, you know, states across the country, like we, I think about 12 states have instituted mandatory recess, including Arizona. We don't have a time limit, but there mm -hmm. is a mandatory uh, two recesses a day for students um, in Arizona. And then we have, um, you know, California, who's recently instituted an ethnic studies requirement mm -hmm. for all high school mm -hmm. students based on um, a lot of activism, but also research that have showed the positive results of um, ethnic studies for all students, mm -hmm. students of color and white students, um, in terms of academic achievement and um, self-actualization. And so, you know, we do have some places that are really, like, listening to research um, and some that are not. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm.
I would add just from personal experience, I, n- I would agree with Carrie's initial statement that it's slow moving and it depends on where you are and depends on even down to the admin support you have at your particular school. Um, but I know in my experience, we have moved away from assigning homework or at least making sure that you know, there can be no graded homework. So homework can be optional if parents are requesting additional resources and activities, but it's not a mandatory or graded thing. And then having the additional recess, we also have implemented having like structured play within the day so that it's not just a free recess time every time, but there are opportunities within a week where the class is doing something structured together where they're getting to play in a cooperative way and there are certain rules and boundaries they get to practice within. So I've seen some some implementation in some of those research-based practices. Um, but again, it's it might be spotty. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I think it's contextual too. I think mm-hmm. that it's important for you know school leaders and district leaders to step back and say, okay, does this make sense for our context? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, later later start times for schools might really affect and not be able, you know, some families might not be able to accommodate that. Working families who start, you know, at 7, 8 a.m., you know, how are they going to get their kids, you know, make sure, you know, their kids are safe and at school while they're at work. And so, um, and my kids are in a school with no homework. Mm-hmm. And so some of the families have really struggled with not knowing what their kids are doing mm-hmm. in school because they don't, they don't right. get homework. And so there's been a, a really... a pretty extensive conversation um, with families and, and teachers in the school about how do we know what's going on with our kids mm-hmm. when we don't have homework. And so what would make sense to, you know, meet families in the middle um, to, you know, as they try to support their kids mm-hmm. uh, learning. And so, yeah, I think it's important that, you know, research is really um, driving some of these practices and policies, but also those conversations with families mm-hmm. um, and communities and contextualizing research. Yeah, I think that's that's really spot on and something that was maybe even an aha moment of it's not a one size fits mm-hmm. all and there's so many different families and different um, positions to consider mm-hmm. um, and that's what makes this a difficult, mm-hmm. you know, issue not only for for children but their families mm-hmm. and how it impacts our community. So thank you for bringing all of those different ideas up. House Bill 2112 that prohibited classroom instruction around race, ethnicity, and sex passed in the House but was held in the Senate last year. The legislation that was reintroduced this legislative season, HB 2458, passed to the Senate as SB 1305 and moved to the governor's desk. Although Governor Hobbs vetoed the bill, what do we what do those bills tell us about the state of education in Arizona? Well, as you mentioned earlier, um, this is not new. We've been here before in 2010, um, and I think it's extremely concerning where, you know, Arizona schools are once again under extreme threat um, of surveillance when it comes to teaching students history, her stories, and other culturally relevant curriculum and pedagogies, and um, I think it's extremely concerning. I mean, this is essentially state-sanctioned censorship. And we're at risk of a whole generation of students um, who will go without access to culturally relevant curriculum, uh, promoting critical thinking and understanding the deep, complex histories of the United States, including genocide, slavery and colonization. Um, And, you know, I think when it comes to some of the language in the bill, you know, Mm -hmm. it's it's uh, it's very subjective. I mean, how do you control whether students feel blame or judgment, and how do you teach 
very, you know, controversial and, and tough uh, subjects about, mm. like, the slavery of black people by white people without, you know, um, having kind of some deep feelings around, you know, race and racism. And so um, I think that puts our teachers at a, in a very precarious situation mm-hmm. and in the sense that either they'll just stop teaching mm-hmm. these histories altogether mm-hmm. be, uh, because they feel like they might be at risk of being fined mm-hmm. $5,000 or um, they're going to have to, you know, navigate and, you know, uh, these very... Whitewash. Yeah, and whitewash mm-hmm. these subjects that... Mm-hmm. And so I think it's it's concerning and it's scary. And, of course, Arizona is not the only state. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. This is happening all over the country. But what's interesting about Arizona is that, again, we've been here before. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had a whole generation of students who were doing really well at Tucson Unified School District mm-hmm. in the Mexican-American mm-hmm. Studies program where research showed these students mm-hmm. were achieving above and beyond their peers, not only in Mexican-American Studies courses, but in all courses. Um, and then, you know, the, that whole program was dismantled over mm-hmm. politics mm-hmm. Um, and later deemed racist by a federal judge. Ironically, by the um, now superintendent. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. yep. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. and what you had mentioned before is thinking about how it impacts teachers. He has started a hotline for people to be able to report when they feel that educators are tapping into any of these issues that haven't even been passed by our governor. And so if it's just a sneaky way to start to implement, I feel like, by putting in a hotline to be able to, to report when you feel like an educator is tapping into any of these fears that they have put out yeah. as... It's, it, it makes teachers scared. It makes them want to either leave yeah. or to avoid and or teach it badly. So why not give educators the tools, the training, and the practices to be able to do it well? If the concern truly is about protecting students, giving them accurate information, and creating critical thinkers, then give educators the training to be able to do those things in the right way rather than make them fearful of even talking about it. Yeah. And here's the thing. A lot of our classrooms are not really, you know, using a lot of culturally relevant mm-hmm. pedagogy and curriculum. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think the training piece is really important. How do we as, you know, teacher preparation programs, mm-hmm. how are we, you know, how do we support those efforts? And meanwhile, you have California who's instituting this statewide ethnic studies course mm-hmm. and really training teachers mm-hmm. and educators to go into the schools and teach these mm-hmm. these histories because they are, you know, using research and, and see how, um, positive this has been for so many students, and yet we're going to ban, you know, we're in threat of, ban, you know, having these type of, types of courses banned yeah. uh, once again, yeah. when a lot of schools haven't even um, developed them, yes. you know, and so, yeah. Well, it's this social amnesia that mm-hmm. just happened in 2010 mm-hmm. that's occurring again, right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. so one of the things I think that we do in uh, – we do see and we are understanding is around the organizing strategies. And so, uh, Dr. Sampson, can you speak a little bit about strategies and efforts behind some of these legislative uh, actions? Yeah. You mean the ones that are supporting kind of these bans? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think that's really it's been really interesting to try to follow um, the uprising of this kind of conservative um, organizing, which a lot of these conservative groups have 
have almost mirrored and, you know, uh, taken note of what civil rights organizations have done for years, uh, for many, many years. And so um, a lot of that, there's about 165 local um, community kind of based organizations that have come out of um, these anti-CRT efforts um, around the country. And so we have that, we have, and they're being funded heavily by, you know, billionaire uh, donors who want to see this kind of, these kind of efforts, you know, um, succeed. Uh, we have uh, media as a huge outlet that mm-hmm. is kind of, that's pushing a lot of misinformation. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that, one of the research projects that my team and I are doing, we're looking at um, hundreds of news articles around the anti-CRT efforts, mm-hmm. you know, masking, like mm-hmm. all the controversies that happen within the district and school board level. Um, and to see the ways in which media has framed some of these issues mm-hmm. um, also, you know, like I think, um, supports kind of how these efforts get unfolded in different places. Oh, that narrative um, matters. Fox mm-hmm. News, New yeah. York Post. Yeah. Um, and a lot of voices are missing from mm-hmm. those conversations. I mean, we don't have, a, you know, like um, students are not usually part of these right. conversations. Educators are usually not part of these conversations. And so, and even the way the media frames, oh, all parents are concerned about CRT. You know, it's not all parents. There's certain parents um, that are concerned. Even in our analysis of pictures, of photos, and some of, the, and these are like even just some of the mainstream news outlets. Over almost fifty percent of these photos are white women, mm-hmm. um, and so you don't see, you know, other families in there, students. Um, you know, having these conversations and you know shifting the narratives around these these topics, and so. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's there's some really intense strategies, um, and you know we have groups in Arizona that are you know the Purple Parents are one of them. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've heard of uh, that group in the East Valley, but you know they've kind of risen out of you know an anti equity initiative, anti LGBTQ, mm-hmm. anti you know <laughs> CRT, um, and we've had you know school board uh, school board elections have become very politicized mm-hmm. on that and. We've had some of the highest increases of school board recall efforts mm-hmm. ever. Um, and so I think that that is also telling to, you know, the need to really understand the local politics mm-hmm. and understand who's representing you at that level. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you, yeah. I think that um, just taking in consideration of both of your responses, and Ashley, you had said, you know, that the attempt is to protect children. Mm-hmm. And as you were Uh, saying, you know, there are families out there, there are students out there that have thoughts, ideas, and a voice, right? Mm -hmm. What, who are we protecting? Who are we actually protecting? What children are we protecting? So I think that that is, that's really relevant. So thank you again for Mm -hmm. those responses. And that that goes into our next question. Um, Thinking back, uh, you know, during COVID times, right, and who's impacted um, and and some of the the impacts that COVID, long-term impacts COVID-19 had on the classroom climate. Um, What are some things that you would like the listeners to know that we may not be aware of in terms of the students Mm -hmm. coming out of that um, experience, teachers coming out of that experience? Um, And then lastly, the hopes for our education system and where we go from here. Mm-hmm. So coming out of COVID and those feeling those long-term impacts, I have so many things that come to mind about what people might not know and the impact it's having on students and their families and teachers. But um, one of the major concrete things that 
comes to mind is um, that COVID relief is no longer being given. And what that means, like in a Title I school where we were getting free lunch for all students, now we're back to having to fill out those forms. Students who are not able to pay for their lunch or their families have not filled out their forms because they haven't felt the need to for a few years. They didn't know necessarily that this was happening. They're giving those emergency meals back to them, which is often not the best for them. It's embarrassing. It's harmful. It's not nutritional. It's not what's best for them. So that's just a really concrete example that I think of that people probably don't notice or know unless their student might be impacted. And then trauma, the trauma that everyone is coming back with is just large. It's immense. And so thinking about students who've lost family, friends, homes, their families lost jobs. They are coming every day with a lot. Yeah. I mean, I and in the academic sphere, um, there's this whole debate about learning loss, you know, and mm-hmm. like, oh, this very deep concern about learning loss. Um, and on one end, I think, you know, I definitely want to acknowledge, I think there's been mm-hmm. um, delays in learning. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't ever want to think that, like, our, our kids weren't learning, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, maybe they were just learning different things, sure. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, learning how to be in community, you know? And I mm-hmm. hope that, you know, this generation has learned that, you know, we need to prioritize a collective, mm-hmm. you know, responsibility and a care for our larger community um, in times like this. Mm-hmm. Um I hope that, you know, our kids, some of, you know, like some of our children were able to connect with each other um, and with their families in different ways. Right. I mean, the uses of technology, right. um, I think, was is also a positive thing that probably came out of COVID for a lot of our families, mm-hmm. the ways to, that we can connect and just some of the innovative things mm-hmm. that they were able to do in some ways. I mean, my daughter enrolled in, I enrolled her in this Black Studies course um, that this random teacher in Sacramento who I never met decided you know what I'm gonna you know she had three kids at home she's like I'm gonna put this thing together she threw it on Facebook and my daughter was in it for like nine months twice a week they met with other kids throughout the country and she was able to learn about black history and black Mm -hmm. studies and at one point I asked her I'm like Rose do you want to continue you know doing this and she's like yeah I'm like why she's like because I don't get to learn about black history mm-hmm. in school and I really loved my teacher you know she yeah. I mean they developed yeah. this rapport on zoom right you know twice a week and I thought this is beautiful like we never would have had that you know opportunity really to do that had it not been for COVID mm-hmm. I mean so there were some really traumatic you know incidents mm-hmm. and it was very stressful but there are mm-hmm. also there were also moments of um, hope and and yeah. building, I yeah. uh, to build off of that too. Just being in students' homes with them for a year, it's yeah. like you're in their house, they're in your house. I got to be so close with so many of my students because they don't get to see my dogs mm-hmm. every day. <laughs> they don't get your to children. see my daughter, <laughs> yeah. have her like sing to them every morning <laughs> or say their mission with them. And so some of those were really, I felt so close to so many of my students that I spent that time with because it was just a different level than we could have in a, a traditional classroom. And so, yeah, that was a mm-hmm. huge positive. Then coming back 
there are some ways where like families who are working normally, I, we just had conferences. So that's on my mind of we could have a virtual conference. Yeah. We could just have a phone conference and then they're going to share their self-reflection on their own after. Um, or you can still come in and have your student-led conference in person. So it does provide some options if we yeah. can utilize those options well. Um, but I think some basic needs still need to be met that aren't. So yeah, transition. I mean, yeah. social emotional, you know, mm-hmm. transition into the classroom, and yeah. it's concerning. Like when this COVID relief funding mm-hmm. completely dries out, like what does that mean for the counselors that were hired in schools or through grants? Yeah, for uh, t- for Title One schools, like that. Those were some of the those big things that were great to have. Yeah. And but still, we we have one nine hundred students, and that is not enough. And everyone can feel that and know that within our, our school community. But yeah. And in terms of, I mean, I don't know if the hope piece, mm-hmm. um, I oh, mean, yeah. I think I, I come at this both from a scholar and as a mother of mm-hmm. two, you know, school age mm-hmm. children. Um, and I really hope that Arizona starts to invest and take, you know, education mm-hmm. seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and invest not only financially, but really, in, you know, engaging uh, uh, our universities, hopefully, with research-based driven policies and practices, with prep- preparing more teachers and more educators to be mm-hmm. in the classroom with our students and outside of the classroom. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have a lot of great community-based organizations that do great education work. Mm-hmm. And I think those organizations need to be supported mm-hmm. and, you know, grow and expand. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, and I think also, you know, there's a concern around, like, how do we protect public education? Mm-hmm. We, you know, we just have, we have one of the biggest voucher yes. programs in the country that just got passed and is, mm-hmm. you know, been implemented this year. And that mm-hmm. is millions of dollars being kind of siphoned, essentially, mm-hmm. from public schools. And mm-hmm. so that that is concerning. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, there needs to, my hope is that, you know, folks will pay attention. Mm-hmm. Um, that they'll get involved um, and that they'll, they'll see this as a really dire issue mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and continue kind of that activism around, um, you know, making sure our kids are getting an equitable and excellent education. Mm-hmm. My hope is that we can restructure because I feel like we're at a breaking point where we have 3,000 vacancies of 194 districts that were surveyed this earlier this year, and um, 44% that are in the classroom are not standard certified teachers. So this is a point where if we don't have educators, even people who aren't certified to be in the classroom who are willing to be educators for our kids, what then happens? And I feel like it's scary, but it's also an opportunity for hope where maybe something will break. We'll, ooh, I'm sorry. We'll be able to restructure in a meaningful way where we can partner with communities better, where we can partner truly to educate a whole child instead of blaming and and base, basing a lot of decisions on fear that might not be legitimate. I will say if... Um if I knew my student loan dollars were going towards K through 12 education, <laughs> right? Like I knew that. Um, to, you could check to, a box right? where that money goes. Um, I, yes. would, I, I would feel much better instead yeah. of it just going in into limbo. So you both talk to parents. You both engage in meaningful conversation. And Dr. Sampson, you talked about 
you know, this difference between narratives. And so I'm wondering what about like this censorship? Well, what do parents uh, think about this censorship in the, the classroom? And why are some parents really fearful of like this diversity learning and other parents are not? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And um, so both, I guess, in my academic research, in my conversations with parents, and I'm on the, you know, PTO mm-hmm. of my kids' school, like, we were having these conversations, a principal advisory committee with other parents. Um, one, I think part of it is s- some parents don't know what's going on. I mean, there's it's, it's really mm-hmm. complex to follow some of these, mm-hmm. you know, anti-CRT bills, and they're like, what, what are we talking about? Like... And then there's the whole debate about like CRT is not even being taught in schools, mm-hmm. but they they're very clear about they want their kids to be exposed to diverse curriculum. You know, mm-hmm. they want their kids to be reflected in in the books that they read. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are mostly black and brown parents, you know, that I'm having conversations with or interviewing in research. They want their kids to um, feel valued and loved, and mm-hmm. you know. Um, that other histories are also, you know, that they're learning other kids' histories, other, you know, families' histories, other histories in, of Arizona, the complex histories um, of, of you know, our country. And so, um, but again, they're not, they're not usually the ones that are going to make the news um, or who are being interviewed, right? And so um, other parents, um, I think that, you know, from what I've read and, you know, and conversations that I've had, I mean, I think there is... Um, you know, almost a zero-sum kind of game being played in some ways. Like, oh, if we're going to invest in this equity office, for instance, in Chandler, um, why are we putting all this money or why are they bringing in this these consulting firms and we're not teaching English and math, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like, you, it's as if you can't do both, right. you know? It's either or, all the, you know? And, right. and that one is better than the, you know? So there's this fear that they're not going to get what they need or that they're going to feel less than, mm-hmm. Um, in in kind of you know in in those conversations and so um, there's also this huge fear about you know LGBTQ oh they're gonna why are they sexualizing the curriculum or they're gonna um, make my child gay or lesbian and and I'm not okay with you know so there's concerns around that and that's kind of been con- conflated mm-hmm. in a lot of ways and actually right. the whole the last two years we've had a lot of conflation of anti-CRT efforts, LGBTQ, book bans, and the COVID, you know, like masking mm-hmm. and vaccination, all under this threat and, and kind of veil of uh, parent, you know, pro-parents, parent mm-hmm. choice, um, and this idea of like freedom. And yet you're going to sanction and censor, right. you know, teachers and schools from being able to teach you know, these diverse histories. So it's a really complex, contradictory, and, you know, somewhat hypocritical Mm -hmm. situation, I think, that's happening. And again, the voices and the narratives are really reflected, you know, from one group of parents and not, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of others. And in Arizona, we, I mean, we're hugely diverse. And Mm -hmm. so it's, it's unfortunate that these other, you know, families are not being, you know, asked to kind of come to the table and have these conversations. Um, When I talk to parents as their child's teacher, it's just about how best to support them. And so I feel like these conversations that are in the media that are constant, that are based in on fear and inciting fear, that are just brutal and aggressive, aren't actually what I have right in front of me when I talk to a parent. That's not their first line of questioning. They want to know that their kid is having friends, that they're 
you know, being kind to other people, that they're engaged when they're here, that they're ready to learn, that they are making growth. What are they learning? What are they excited about? Those are the questions that parents have. And I feel like this other narrative of parents are concerned and parents want to have choices. I This leading to that contradiction of parents wanting choices, yet we're taking choices away. We're taking options away. We're taking realities away to give one choice and one choice to educators, one choice to students, and only because of one group that's asking for it. It doesn't make sense logically. It's just contradictory and hypocritical. So, um, you know, I'm on the principal advisory committee for my kids' school and whatever. Um, The principal came to the meeting with uh, several of us parents, and she said, the last two weeks I've had multiple racist incidents happen where kids are, like, Mm. saying, for instance, the N-word to another kid, and I've had to pull these kids into my office, and I don't really know what to do. Um, I'm trying to figure out how to address these things, right? Um, and from the start, I, you know, it, it was February. I'm like, okay, well, first of all, we have Black History Month. We did celebrate mm-hmm. Hispanic Heritage Month. Are we doing, are there any plans for Black History Month? Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I, you know, we haven't. But the, I'm like, well, mm-hmm. okay, on that basic level, we can start to do stuff like that, mm-hmm. right? But also, you know, we so we came together and we organized this reading book study on Bettina Love's book, uh, We Want to Do More Than Just Survive, on mm-hmm. teaching, um, mm-hmm. abolitionist teaching. I mean, it's very, like, uh, concrete around like anti-blackness and mm-hmm. equity, um, and so we, you know, suggested as parents, let's let's facilitate a book study to like across the school with teachers and families, mm-hmm. um, and the principal to kind of get more at these issues, right? But there is also concern, like, oh, we have to get check with the district right. because sure. of this sure. law, right. you know, yeah. and right. this, can, yeah, like, mm-hmm. well, okay, make sure it's the PTO that is sponsoring it and not yes. not the right. school sponsoring, you know, because they don't want to yes. get in trouble or they want mm-hmm. parents to, you know, make call the hotline. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. but yet we have these real issues that where kids are, you know, being they're harassed together. and there's racist <laughs> incidents right. happen. You know, having a, a child be called the N word that's right. dramatic. Mm-hmm. Right. You know sure. what I mean? And so to pretend like we don't need to be addressing this mm-hmm. and we need culturally relevant pedagogy. Right. We need to have these conversations around critical race theory. You know, mm-hmm. it might not be called critical. But we need to have critical conversations around race and racism. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. to have a law like this would, you know, essentially ban those opportunities and but allow, you know, racist incidents to, right. you know, occur without any kind of address, you know, being able to address it mm-hmm. in an educational, developmentally appropriate way. Yeah. So again, in my rant, I'm sorry. <laughs> Dr. Kaylee Sampson, Miss Ashley Farrell, we thank you so much for being here today and giving all of your wisdom and knowledge. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you. This it's is great. Been great. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you're having these conversations. Yes. Yes. Important. Yeah. I'd like to take a brief moment to thank this episode's participants, Dr. Carrie Sampson and Ashley Farrell as well as our sponsor, Arizona PBS, for making this podcast possible. Throughout this episode, we have touched upon topics that seem to bridge academic disciplines and different fields of thought like history, media, technology, and of course, politics and education. When we think about the politicizing of education, it is nearly impossible to think within just a single lens because education alone speaks through every discipline. So in order to grasp the span of this topic, it is beneficial and even crucial to think through an interdisciplinary lens. For those of you who joined us for our first episode, I provided a metaphor using colors to explain what interdisciplinary is. 
But to put it simply, interdisciplinary means relating to more than one branch of knowledge. It's the way that we look at a social problem, set of social relations and or phenomenon using multiple disciplinary perspectives. And by thinking in this way, one can create new possibilities for change, problem solving, and ways to address contemporary social issues from multiple perspectives. Let's look at a few examples that enlighten us on some of the themes that we have already discussed. Here, I want to highlight the intersection of education, technology, and other potential fields through what is called e-textiles. As our guests mentioned, new cooperative learning strategies and project-based learning are becoming critical tools for students and teachers to be more engaged and to create more meaningful connections. E-textiles, which are fabrics that are interwoven with and enhanced by electronic components, are a great example of this. Scholars like Yasmin B. Kafai, Kylie Pepler, and even the late Barbara Guzzetti of ASU call upon the growing uses and industries of e-textiles, education being one of them. For example, the company Exploring Computer Science has created a research-based computer science curriculum for high schoolers where they learn to combine wearable fabrics with electronic circuitry that can serve different purposes. According to their website, students work both individually and in groups to make their e-textiles, which blend skills across fields, expanding students' understanding of what computer science can be and engaging those who may not have realized that it can include their interests. With some creativity, other fields like art and fashion can create e-textiles by adding LED lights to clothing like Christmas sweaters or even rave fashion. While music classes could create e-textiles by enhancing clothes with sensors, speakers, and other circuitry to create sounds when they are tapped. With a creative mind, e-textiles can provide a seemingly endless amount of possibilities for interdisciplinary and educational projects. Now, the interdisciplinarian in me wonders if we could draw a relationship between e-textiles and politics. Challenge accepted. By thinking through a political lens, we can frame this connection by realizing how politics could hinder e-textile accessibility by preventing the provisions of finances, materials, and tools necessary for certain e-textile projects. This is relevant to modern e-textiles because as one may have thought, these tech-fabric hybrids are crucial for space exploration as they create the capacity for smart fabrics, exoskeletons, and even astronaut suits. But by restricting the use and creation of higher tech e-textiles to more economically privileged communities and institutions, we also restrict the capacity for imagining our future. This notion is wonderfully summed up in L.M. Wilkins' fascinating article called E-Textiles, Power and Resistance, where the author suggests that e-textile technologies are a result of an entrenched system of power and act as a control method over the vision of the future rather than the suggested notion that they are an avenue of exploration. In this way, political dynamics can prevent schools, universities, and communities around the world from being able to access e-textile technologies, which prevents their unique contributions to the world of exploration, innovation, and education. But as a society, it is our responsibility to realize the importance of creative and innovative projects such as these that push the boundaries of traditional thinking and make way for critical thought and discovery. The goal of this episode was to bring awareness to how modern political narratives are shaping our educational system and how this reshaping is impacting students, parents, and teachers and faculty alike. These modern interactions are not new. We have seen these controlling narratives before, which have led to the erasure of rich cultural histories, identities, languages, and so much more. But what is causing this continued struggle for educational freedom? How can we as educators, leaders, parents, friends, and community members maintain and even regain the rights to learn and to teach critical arenas of thought that can better our society? Well, by speaking with our guests, we have learned that there is a lot of change occurring in the education world. 
On one end of the spectrum, we have positive changes that are occurring due to the impacts of research-driven initiatives. On the other hand, uninformed decisions are being pushed around the country, which are causing waves of challenges that range from extreme surveillance of cultural curriculum with hotlines being used to police teachers, and to the banning of that curriculum due to fear and misinformation. But of course, not all hope is lost. As our guests have suggested, it is important that we get more involved with our communities and become more aware of our political environments. Advocate for better financial investments in our education, as well as better research-based policies and practices that benefit our students and communities at large. Don't take media information for granted. Take control of the narrative by listening to teachers, educators, and other scholars that actually do the work that is necessary to realize what is optimal for our student population. Education is a place where we learn about basic points of information, knowledge, and the importance of historical context in framing how we know what we know and the conditions for information to emerge. But it's also where we add to our experiences, learn to communicate and work with others, to think critically, and where we discover our own identities in relation to our friends, classmates, and teachers. It's where we learn that we love learning, drawing, reading, singing, dancing, or even leading, building, creating, and composing. All the while, education should be a place where students and teachers feel safe exploring who we are and who we want to be. But if certain narratives that do not reflect the wonderfully diverse communities that we are continue to move forward, we may lose critical parts of those experiences. So stay informed, get your information from the source, and stay tuned to our podcast so we can continue to provide you with voices that bring insight into our ever-changing society. Now, we recognize that politicizing education is a broad topic that can't be fully discussed within the scope of this podcast. So to ensure that our listeners leave with more than they came with, we've included a list of local and national resources in this episode's show notes, which also include resources for e-textiles for those who find it as interesting as I do. We hope that today's discussion, along with the resources provided, bring you new knowledge and insights into your life that inspires you and your endeavors. And remember, regardless of who you are or what you do, Regardless of what you study or practice, we are all part of something bigger than ourselves. So why not tap into that bigger piece? Utilize your studies, your practices, your trades, and unique perspectives to think across landscapes to create new waves of change. Get activated, get involved, and help create a better world for those to come. Thanks for listening to OK School Me. This podcast was produced in the Ed Plus Studios in Tempe, Arizona. It is executive produced by Kyra Trent, with additional production and editorial support from Dr. Mako Fitzward, Dr. Selena Osuna, Jamal Brooks-Hawkins, Amber Green, Tana Grabowski, and Kyle McKinney. For more information about this podcast, please refer to the show notes and follow us on Twitter and YouTube at ASUSTL.